Before we begin this week's conversation, I want to let you know about a new podcast named Disorder. The Disorder podcast is hosted by NATO Foundation analyst Jason Pack and former British diplomat Alexandra Hall Hall. It examines the increasing chaos of our times, the rise of hybrid warfare, cyber misinformation, transnational crime, corruption, global warming, immigration flows, and anti-immigrant sentiment, and how fed by these things neopopulism has spread, further fueling a backlash against free markets, international organizations, expertise, and globalization. The Disorder Podcast argues that we are living through a new historical era, one characterized by the inability to coordinate coherent responses to global challenges, and one in which major global players, previously regarded as upholders of international law, have sought to actively exacerbate this new global disorder. The Disorder Podcast focuses on our global system via engaging storytelling, discussions with experts and opinion formers, reporting, and solutions and suggestions for what can be done about it all. Find and follow Disorder wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast about history and how to think about history. For more on this episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can find links and readings related to today's podcast, comment on the conversation, and sign up for our newsletter. And consider becoming a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room, a community of Patreon supporters. Hello, the scientific community is by any measure a very strange kind of community, writes my guest. For starters, no one knows who exactly belongs to it. Its members are a miscellany of individuals, but also of disparate institutions. Nor does it have a fixed location. The village conjured up by the term scientific community is scattered all over the globe, and its inhabitants meet only occasionally, if at all. Far from living in neighborly harmony or even collegial mutual tolerance, the members of this uncommunal community compete ferociously engage in notoriously vitriolic polemics. Although modern science has been called the locomotive of all modernity, the scientific community more closely resembles a medieval guild. Given this, one is bound to ask how precisely this contentious, stratified community even exists, let alone cooperates. Yet cooperation has been a continuous strand uniting modern science. Lorraine Daston has described the growth and mutations of that community and that cooperation in her new book, Rivals, How Scientists Learn to Cooperate. She is the Director Emerita of the Max Planck Institute for the History of Science in Berlin, visiting professor in the Committee of Social Thought at the University of Chicago, and permanent fellow at the Berlin Institute of Advanced Study. Lorraine Daston, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thank you. A pleasure to be with you. So, what did Descartes get wrong about community and about scientific community? Descartes didn't want to belong to a community. <laughs> he was probably the last person to attempt to reinvent science, all of it, from astronomy to physiology to medicine, by himself, deduced from first principles. He himself had to admit that he failed in this project, but he did so extremely grudgingly. And when it became clear that he was going to need help in order to pursue his project of reforming natural philosophy, what he really wanted was not colleagues, but money, so that he could pay assistants whom, as he said, would not distract him by wanting pleasant conversation or ask irrelevant questions. So his model of scientific community, first uh, to say it was communal, would have um, 
to say it was not communal would have been an understatement, but it was essentially a staff. What he wanted was a paid staff of underlings who would execute his orders. That's not what happened in the end. But when he was writing in 1637, no one knew what shape the scientific community would take. So even at the time of Descartes' birth, there's already something amongst humanists that we can call the Republic of Letters, um, which develops and then quickly is appropriated or inhabited by scientific citizens. So could you describe what this Republic of Letters was and what it became? You have a wonderful, one of the many epigrams and observations in your book, as you say, was more like a state of nature than a state. So what was this state of nature called the Republic of Letters? That observation, by the way, is not mine, but one of the <laughs> leading citizens of the Republic of Letters, uh, the editor of one of the first book reviews, it was called um, News from the Republic of Letters in the late 17th century. Um, and he said that this is um, a republic in which fathers fight with sons and their son-in-laws. Nobody is safe. So the Republic of Letters was, just as you say, originally the invention of learned humanists in the 15th century who imagined themselves as a geographically and also chronologically distributed community of um, the learned, of people who read the same texts, who knew the same ancient languages, who were interested in similar questions, originally questions of philology, but very soon some of these very same people would became interested in botany, for example. We have lots of examples of learned philologists starting to exchange botanical specimens with each other. What is happening during this revival of what they believe to be an ancient ideal, and it's very much centered on ancient texts, on Greek and, and Latin, what's happening during this time in the 15th and 16th century is an enormous expansion of European experience toward the Far East and the Far West through the voyages of exploration, um, both through colonial ventures and commercial ventures. What this does is to create an incredible avalanche, really, of new flora, fauna, which come pouring into the ports of Europe, also encounters with new peoples, um, encounters with new medicines. And that, in turn, begins to create a province of the Republic of Letters, which is dedicated to what we now call science, natural philosophy and natural history, because it becomes all too evident, Descartes, as I say, is the last holdout, that no one scholar, no matter how brilliant, no matter how diligent, could possibly do justice to the blooming, buzzing confusion of what we could call the new nature of the 16th century. Let's go back to this metaphor, not a metaphor, of republic of letters. Um, it's, it's always struck me as interesting that that is a self-generated metaphor. At the same time, republicanism is becoming important in political theory, and not only in political theory, in political practice. Um, having recently had uh, Josh Ober and Brooke Manville on to talk about their, their book on democracy and republics called Civic Bargain, um, they have a list of six or seven distinctive characteristics of democracy, which they would argue goes from Athens to modern America. And the first one is 
no boss. And in that way, it does the Republic of Letters is an acknowledgement that there there is no one unitary boss. There can't be a dictator of the Republic of Letters. Therefore, it's a republic. What's interesting to me is, uh, and you said in the in the quote I read from you about this this uh, this often what you say this com- ferocious competition between citizens of the Republic of Letters. The Republic of Letters, like a medieval Italian republic, is very hierarchically inclined to a certain degree. Would that be, is that true from the very beginning or is that is that fair now or then? It, so it, it does indeed very quickly become hierarchical and it becomes hierarchical both through individual prestige, but also the prestige of institutions. Mm. So starting in the middle of the 17th century, um, earlier in the case of Italy, and earlier in the case of literary academies, but by the middle of the 17th century, we have scientific academies, like the Accademia del Cimento, the Academy of Experiment, which is founded in Florence, or the Accademia Naturae Curiosorum, um, the Academy of People Who Are Curious About Nature, later the Leopoldina in the German lands, and then the Royal Society of London, the Royal Academy of Sciences in Paris. So those institutions very much see themselves as the government of the Republic of Letters. And as I say, we are talking about the humanities as well, and the arts to some extent, as well as the sciences. So before there was a Royal Academy of Sciences in Paris, there was the Académie Française, which was founded to purify the French language and is still in charge of producing authoritative French dictionaries. Um, so the, so there, there is a hierarchical structure, but what's really distinctive about the Republic of Letters and indeed early modern republicanism is that it is fiercely autonomous, fiercely independent. So like Republican Florence, the Republican ideals of um, people like John Locke, for example, the idea is to be so autonomous in many ways that you are autarkic, you don't need anything else. But in the case of the Republic of Letters, you have a situation in which um, you wish to be fiercely independent of other sources of authority, for example, political authority, uh, social authority, financial authority. This was always an ideal honored only in the breach. But within the Republic of Letters, there is a view that there should be a stratification based upon merit. And then the question becomes, who is qualified to judge merit? And the Republic of Letters, and this becomes, in a sense, the kernel of the book, which is the members of the Republic of Letters decide very soon that the only people who are qualified to judge merit are other residents of the Republic of Letters who are their arch rivals for glory. So they are caught within this extremely uncomfortable situation that the people who with whom they are competing ferociously are the people from whom they crave recognition. That aspect of the organization of intellectual life has never changed since. And it has spread to all the rest of us, all people, anyone involved in intellectual life is historians now that applies to us as much as it does to a scientist. Exactly. It always applied to us. I mean, in a sense, mm, yeah. we are the people who We're set first. the pattern. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, you write, every intellectual community is a dance between proximity and distance, which is lovely, and is a continuous theme through the, this elegant little book um, and has many, I think, applications to lots of many parts of life. But could you explain what you mean by that in reference to the 17th century Republic of Letters? I should emphasize that the Republic of Letters is by no means um, the only intellectual community. Intellectual communities have existed since ancient Mesopotamia, the scribal dynasties of Babylonia, um, the imperial schools of China, um, and of course the... Um, Heraclitus sitting on the Temple of Diana at exactly. Ephesus. Um, yeah. The Academy of Plato, the Lyceum of Aristotle. Um, the the dance of proximity and distance becomes, um, however, for the members of the Republic of Letters of the 17th and 18th century, um, a real dance of proximity and distance. Those communities are all about the transmission of knowledge over time, and they are organized with a strong pedagogical dimension. Whereas the Republic of Letters in the 17th and 18th centuries is about cooperation in the present, not just transmission of knowledge from the past to the next generation. That means that they actually have to deal with real live people. They have to do with real, real life people, many of whom they detest. Um, and that is the proximity. So they have to correspond with one another. If you want that precious sample of Peruvian bark from a Jesuit but you are a Protestant, you are going to have to write to Father X uh, SJ to request that sample. Um, so that is the enforced proximity. Um, but the distance is the distance that is necessary for an impartial judgment of merit. And it becomes an article of faith amongst citizens of the Enlightenment, Republic of Letters, that the best people to judge your merit are not your colleagues sitting next door, the people who are closest proximity, but the people who are foreigners. Even better would be posterity. And we still think about this. We think the future generations will be the test of our work. But we prefer that people recognize us and give us prizes in the here and now. So in that situation, distance becomes a highly coveted facet of one's colleagues, because although they may also be rivals, they're not rivals with quite the same ferocity as the people who are also in Paris, also in London, also in Florence. And that's so interesting. And this is often a tangent, but of course that sets up from the very beginning of the conflict that we see every day. If those of us who are can't help but read the Chronicle of Higher Education, um, that between the desires of the provost at Excelsior University and his professors or her professors, uh, the Excelsior depends upon judging the merit of the people that are there uh, in order to benefit Excelsior. But of course, the interests of the individuals and uh, the individual academics and of their guilds are not necessarily the same thing. In fact, usually necessarily different from that of Excelsior University. But you're pointing out this has been the case since, in many ways, the 17th century. Yes. What has changed is simply the inventiveness of finding new ways to 
create rankings. So it is true that we think, uh, we who are work in universities, think rankings of the US news and world report sorts are corrupting to um, what matters in intellectual life. And there's certainly truth in that. But this is by no means an, an innovation of the late 20th century. The idea of ranking, of figuring out who belongs to the creme de la creme, the elite of a discipline, who is in the middle, who is at the bottom, this has been going on informally and sometimes formally in terms of memberships of academies, but also the prizes. One of the first things the academies do is say, we're going to give prizes, international prizes, which will both add to the luster of our academy, but also help to reinforce these international hierarchies. Mm-hmm. So um, plus a change, plus a la même chose. <laughs> so let's move on to the uh, 18th century, and to serve two great examples of this cooperation and the, the way in which rivals can cooperate. Uh, the first of them is a very famous incident in the history of science, and really it should be an in intellectual history and world history. I think novels have been written about it. Um, the transit of Venus, um, was, which was to measure the distance from the Earth to the Sun. Uh, but it strikes me reading the book that what's more important than measuring the distance to the Earth to the Sun is the innovations that it provided in an intellectual culture. Yes, it was to establish, as it were, the yardstick for the solar system. The Copernican system tells you the relative distances between the planets, but it doesn't tell you the absolute distance of what's called the astronomical unit, just as you said, the distance from the Earth to the Sun. And Edmund Halley of Comet fame figures out that um, a fairly rare occurrence, but not that rare, it happens twice a century, the transits of Venus, which is the, the passage of Venus across the face of the Sun, could actually give you that value if you could measure um, the the angle of solar parallax um, well enough. And this is, it's like an eclipse. It's only visible in certain parts of the world. And um, Halley ha- thought this was going to be a piece of cake. He said, you know, we really just need someone with a decent telescope and a clock and fairly disciplined observing habits. That's all. Um, and Just. Mm. that's all, exactly. And starting um, before, so th- and these are going to happen in the 18th century in 1761 and 1769. And starting um, in the 1760s, a French astronomer named Joseph de Lille begins to try and recruit an international network of observers to take the measurement at different parts along the um, trajectory. It's just like an eclipse. It moves, of course, with um, the Earth's um, the Earth's motion during the day. And this means sending people to um, places like Pondicherry in India or Siberia or parts of California, then, of course, very wild territory. Um, it means overcoming the fact that Britain and France are involved in a war at the time, um, overcoming hostilities. Um, several people perish in on these expeditions. Um, but it is the first effort to coordinate scientific activity in a joint venture. Um, in all, perhaps 120 observers are involved at um, over 50 stations, observing stations. Now, Unfortunately, despite the enormous efforts involved and the the dangers, the heartbreak when the sky clouds over on the crucial day, um, the 
values of the angle measured do not agree with one another. It's an extremely large error factor. And unfortunately, this collaboration, this first international collaboration, dissolves in bickering amongst the astronomers as to whose value is the right one. But it lives on in scientific memory, and it becomes the template for the other really impressive, if short-lived, collaboration of the 18th century, which is a meteorological collaboration centering on Mannheim. Yes. Before we go to the Mannheim Meteorological Initiative, which could also could be a title of a novel, I mean, it is extraordinary that Second Transit of 1769, which enthusiasts for Captain Cook will, should remember that one of the reasons, the re, sort of the real reason to go to Tahiti was to deploy his astronomers and make this measurement. But it wasn't just him. There were 151 observers at 77 stations from Hudson Bay to Tahiti. Now, it was scientifically a failure, but it is a, that's just amazing success. That, that's, that sort of intellectual power could be mobilized and sent to all the corners of the known Earth. And, and with enormous idealism. Now, it should be said that this would have not been possible without European imperialism and commercial interests. Mm -hmm. So that many of the places which served as outposts were colonies or commercial outposts of the East India, the, the British East India Company or the Dutch East India Company. So um, transits of Venus might have indeed were observed um, in the early part of the 17th century, but they couldn't be observed in this way with that kind of uh, coverage and personnel and equipment um, until European power had begun to spread out over, over the globe. It was also made possible by the fact that monarchs were personally interested in this expedition. Um, the Empress Catherine of Russia, King George III of Great Britain, um, various um, German princes, and of course, um, the court of Louis XV in, in, in France. So that, um, in a sense, the personal prestige, not the national prestige so much, but the personal prestige of monarchs in the eyes of their fellow monarchs was also at stake. But this sort of presages the ways in which the 19th century, which we'll get to in a second moment, national prestige starts to rest on scientific achievement. At, at, the point, at that point, it's the, the monarch's personal prestige, the prestige of the monarchy, the kingdom. As republicanism infiltrates even into monarchies, I suppose you could say there's a transference of that um, from you know, the person to mm. the nation. No, that's a really interesting way of putting it. In a sense, what happens in the 18th century, at least with these enlightened monarchs, and mm -hmm. I, I say enlightened in raised eyebrow quotation marks because in many ways they are in no way enlightened um, in terms of their political values. It's but, a transitive it's a transitive adjective. Yes. So but, but they're enlightened in the sense that they wish to bask in the reflected glory of the prestige of science, and not only science, these are the kinds of monarchs who are inviting Mozart to come compose operas for them. Um, they're inviting Voltaire for a stay at Sans Souci in Potsdam. Um, they are aware of the celebrity status of at least those savants, those intellectuals at the pinnacle of the Republic of Letters, and they wish to, in some way, um, borrow a little bit of that glamour. Mm -hmm. 
Let's go back to the Mannheim Meteorological Initiative, which I had never heard of, and now I'm very glad I did. What 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 is it, and and how does it work? So this is um, this is not the first attempt to create um, a weather watching network. It was already known by the end of the 17th century that the weather in Zurich would be the weather in parts of England in five days. This was part of the achievement of the Republic of Letters. This is pen pal science, um, and they're always corresponding with each other. Um, if you go to the archives of these academies, like the Royal Society of London or the Paris um, Royal Academy, they're their archives are full of people sending in weather observations. The problem is that in order to be a really good weather observer, it's a full-time job. Um, one of the earlier unsuccessful weather um, networks, which was established in France, um, demanded that people stay home all the time, never receive guests, and <laughs> um, you know, wake up at seven every single morning to take their barometer and thermometer readings. You can imagine how it didn't work <laughs> it for for this job. Um, what the Mannheim network succeeded in doing was something that the transits of Venus had not succeeded, which was because they had the patronage of one of these enlightened absolutist monarch, um, Karl. Theodore of the Palat tonight, um, they they sent everybody standardized instruments. This was an enormous effort because the instruments were made of glass and they often arrived in pieces. So they had to be sent again and often a third time. Um, and they also standardized the hours of observation, which are still called the Manham hours. Um, their network, it must be said, had nothing like the geographic reach of the transits of Venus, but it was sustained for much longer. It eventually was the casualty of a double blow. Um, the um, court astronomer and meteorologist, Ahemo, who was the moving spirit behind it, died in 1790. Um, and then, of course, Napoleon's forces in, invaded Mannheim. Um, but um, while it lasted, it was an example of what could be achieved with co centralized coordination and standardization. So, and it also, I would imagine, starts to form a sort of intellectual tradition of this is how we do things. This Absolutely. is how things can be done. Absolutely. That, that's, that's a really important point because it sets also the pattern that the most successful international scientific collaborations are going to be about standardization. So mm -hmm. the standardization of instruments, the standardization of units, for example, the ampere, the ohm, the meter, the whole metric system, um, the standardization of procedures, um, the standardization of nomenclature, for example, chemical nomenclature. So yes, it sets that pattern. We'll have, I'll link in the show notes to the, I believe that, uh, I mean, the, the standardization efforts is ongoing. Um, and even in America, where we steadfastly stick to our version of measurements, we all base it on a pristine kilo that's been brought carefully from France, or and so on. So I'll, I'll put that in the show notes. Uh, the uh, Science is a World Project, I hadn't expected to giggle uh, while reading this book, and yet I find my, found myself confronting the, the glorious world-changing exemplar of the Universal Postal Union. Uh, and which struck me as very funny, uh, why the Universal Postal Union should be have seen as basically a a well. This is this is none other than Leonard Wolf, 
The Universal Postal Union, after a life of over 40 years, remains the most complete and important example of international administration, having by its birth affected a revolution in the constitution of the Society of Nations. I know um, it sounds it sounds absolutely hyperbolic, and he's writing in 1916 in the midst of the war. And and you persuade me of the importance of the. Of, it's it's clear the Universal Postal Union was tremendously important. So could you explain uh, how it, how that happened and and why? First, one has to be aware of the utter chaos of the world postal system before the 1874 creation of the World Postal Union. So if you wanted to send a letter from New York to Australia, it could go any of perhaps five different routes and the difference in the cost would be perhaps 100%, 200%, 300%, depending on how it went. And at each port of call, it would be charged by that country in its currency with its rules and its weights and measures. Um, so it, you had this kind of cat's cradle system of complex bilateral relationships, which to his enormous credit, the US postmaster during the Civil War, Blair, decided was absolutely intolerable. And he quite on his own initiative, just wrote to, his, to the other postmasters of the world and said, Let's get together in a really nice place, Paris, um, and see if we can sort this out. It's quite extraordinary if you know anything about the history of the Civil War. He he had a lot of other things on his plate, like a, absolutely, a basi a basically handing out spoils to the new Republican Party, and uh, uh, and and trying to prevent Lincoln from actually abolishing slavery. But that's a separate story. But he still had a time to do this. It's really quite amazing. Uh, mm. And so, something so really important and radical. So it was a success. It was a success. And it was a success because before governments got involved, and because it, the postal systems were state enterprises, eventually governments did have to get involved and sign a treaty. But before the governments got involved, the postmasters just met had a glorious time talking shop in Paris and who knows what else they did, um, and worked out basically what they thought would work. And by the end of eight, the 1874 Bern Conference, they had a treaty which allowed you to send a 15-gram letter almost any place in the world amongst the signatory nations um, for, I think it was something like um, 25 centimes. It was done in front of the French currency because the French were so balky, they had to be bribed basically um, into accepting this. Talk about plus a chance. Yeah, exactly right, yes. Um, so, so it, it, and people thought this was a miracle. I mean, this, you know, suddenly it, it would be as if tomorrow at the UN, Everybody got together and said, you know, why are we quarreling all the time? Why don't we just make up? Why don't we just have a general armistice? And, and why don't we just have, why don't we go a bit step further? Let's have a great bonfire of weapons too. I, I have no idea what we've been squabbling about all these years. That was the response. And that's why Leonard Wolf saw it as the template for world governance. Mm -hmm. I mean, there wouldn't have been a League of Nations had there not been the existence proof of the World Postal Union. So this becomes a model for scientific collaboration. Um, are there? I was wondering if there are any other possible. Uh, well, there's there are sort of 
things happening simultaneously. For example, there are always various congresses in conjunction with the international expositions that become popular. And every other one seems to be held in Paris as well. Um, so uh, congresses on world religions, for example, popular 1892 Chicago, 1893 Chicago exposition. And I'm wondering if, if those aren't a further influence on this sort of scientific sci- methods of scientific governance Oh, absolutely. Um, so Paris is a special case because the Par- the French realize by the 1870s, the 1880s, that they are losing to the British commercially and industrially and also imperially, and they've just lost the Franco-Prussian War to the Germans. So they decide very self-consciously they're going to make Paris the cultural and scientific capital of the world, and they're going to do so by these um incredibly um spectacular world expositions the eiffel tower is part of these world expositions electricity is introduced into paris as part of these world expositions and this is all part of a more general program to attract international congresses especially high profile ones of science and culture to paris to coincide with these world expositions, which was a, a great um, attraction for the Congress delegates themselves who bring their families um, and have a, a glorious time. Yeah. And so you've got people, uh, all sorts of Americans. Uh, we've done a podcast on John Wanamaker of Philadelphia, the department store magnate, and he's going there and he's getting ideas about technology, but also buying piles and piles of art. Um, right. which he then brings back. And so these, this science and the arts, this is all together, the cultural, the new cultural power of, of France. Uh, and this is what Pasteur is. They have an exemplar of this cultural power um, in Louis Pasteur as exactly. well that they, that, they can, uh, that they can promote. So you, you refer to two models then of science as a world project, the diplomatic model and the voluntarist model. Could you explain uh, them in, in, that, in that order? What's the diplomatic model? This is very much um, a French model, and it is an example of using uh, the glitter and glamour of Paris to attract the international elite, in this case of astronomers, who are invited via diplomatic pouch to an 1887 meeting in Paris to uh, photograph the entire sky with the new equipments of astrophotography as a what you want to say a legacy for the astronomers of the year 3000 huh. and that the the observatory of paris where it takes place is decked out in sevres porcelain galaxies of silver candelabra um, uh. beautiful plants imported from the jardin des plantes all of this from the um, french diplomatic store which is usually used for state dinners um, phalanxes of Louis XIV's red velvet upholstered chairs are brought in for this occasion. The dinners are nine course. There are soirées musicales. Um, no expenses spared to wine and dine the astronomers and to get them to use the French refracting telescope. <laughs> so this is exactly this cultural scientific power being blended together in one seamless garment. With all of the rights of international diplomacy, of which, of course, the French are past masters. So that's the diplomatic model. Mm-hmm. The voluntarist model is that of, once again, the meteorologists who 
um, also have a collaboration inspired by photography in the first instance, which is an international atlas of clouds. The classification of clouds that we probably all learned in elementary school, which dates from the early 19th century from Luke Howard of um, Stratus, Cumulus, Cirrus, Nimbus, had by the 1870s splintered into many, many different categories. And most alarming to the meteorologists, categories that were used in different places by different people in different ways. So a cumulus cloud might be identified differently in Japan than it was in Portugal. And they wanted to standardize um, usage um, attaching these names to objects by having a photographs of typical, typical clouds of this kind. This had, until the very end, almost no outside funding. The astronomers, uh, sorry, the meteorologists gathered at the editor's home in Uppsala, and um, it was done more or less on a voluntary basis, people contributing their time. They had the good fortune that one member of their group was independently wealthy, and he helped to bankroll the publication. But it was, from the beginning to the end, um, a model which depended on the directors of meteorological observatories of the cooperating countries. So two very different approaches, uh, and yet both of them equally successful? So the Cap de Ciel, in some ways, I think, probably wins because it requires the most stamina and the most sacrifice on the part of participants. So like all of these big boondoggle projects. The idea was that in five years, we'll get it done. We're going to get it done in five <laughs> years. Um, so this starts in 1887. You can imagine that World War I puts a damper on this effort. You start to have, especially after decolonialization in the mid-20th century, um, the observatories in the Southern Hemisphere dropping out. The larger observatories like Paris and Greenwich very quickly become tired of the grudge work um, that the grunt work which has to be done um, to measure these uh, um, photographic plates. So they delegate it to the provincial observatories. Um, the poor Australians end up having to cover 18% of the sky because they're, they're basically the last observatory standing in the Southern Hemisphere, which means, as they said, they missed out on all of astrophysics in the 20th century because they had dedicated themselves to this project. So oh. this, and this project became an embarrassment for astronomers by the 1970s. By the 1970s, they very quietly end it. They don't complete it, but they just end it. And then in the 1990s, after people had stopped thinking about it, this, this Sleeping Beauty archive of glass photographic plates is reawakened because it becomes a source for one of the proofs of dark matter, because what you have is a data point of where stars appeared to be around 1900 and where they appear now. And you have Hipparchus, which is one of the European Union um, space telescopes, now gathering data to be used to compare with the Cartesian values. So it's a case of um, a scientific archive, which just as the astronomers had hoped, mm -hmm. is answering questions that could not have been anticipated in 1887 when it was first launched, and presumably will continue, perhaps to the year 3000, to answer astronomical questions. 
Um, the International Cloud Atlas is still being issued and reissued. It was last updated in an online version in 2017, and it's used by observers all over the world. But it's a considerably <laughs> less effort and sacrifice than the Cap du Ciel was. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of extraordinary, given the uh, two world wars and a Cold War, that the 20th century is the, seems to be the the final flourishing, the instantiation. Well, we, we use the term scientific community in the 20th century where it hasn't been used before. And reading you, I realize it's it perhaps this happens not despite the two world wars and the Cold War, but really almost because of them. Is that? Yeah, yeah, to a first approximation, I I think that's correct. So the term scientific community does exist. You find scattered references to it in the late 19th, early 20th century, but it's always to either a particular disciplinary community or to a particular national community, so the British scientific community or the Australian scientific community. It doesn't start to get used in the singular to represent all of science everywhere until really after the Second World War. And it, in a sense, comes to stand for a form of international governance, a utopian form of international governance in many ways, um, that is a kind of back-channel diplomacy for countries which are otherwise hostile toward one another. Um, One example of this is the International Geophysical Year of 1957, in which um, the Soviet Union and the United States cooperate, um, especially on on Arctic um, scientific exploration. Um, um, But there are other examples as well. And so, for example, when uh, um, Germany, after disgracing itself um, in World War II, starts to try to establish diplomatic relations with the new nation of Israel, it's done through sending exchanges of scientists. Mm-hmm. So it, it becomes a way of, once again, um, creating diplomatic ties where political ties are impossible, or military mm-hmm. ties are certainly impossible. Um, so you refer to two, you refer to a top-down governance and a scientific internationalism. What's the top-down governance model? in the 20th century. I mean, how how does that work? Is sort of, is this where, is this guided by new conceptions of technocracy or does this produce the idea of technocracy? It's actually, I think, more to do with the triumph of discipline. So there is a last hurrah moment for what we might call the unity of science movement um, in um, just before World War I. How so? Um, the academies, all of the academies decide they're going to have an international union of academies, which is very top down because the academies probably consider themselves to be the elites of their individual nations. And now they're going to all band together to be the elites of the elites to govern everybody else. I once met someone on the Washington subway who has worked for the national association of associations. So I guess that was uh, exactly that kind of um, (laughs) Borgesian construction of, um, um, and this, this, this capsizes entirely 
in World War I. It, it, um, and what takes its place, there are attempts to take its place, but what really takes its place uh, um, is the international, by 1931, is the International um, Association of Scientific Unions, which are basically the disciplines. And it's the um, elites of each discipline, the chemists, um, the physicists, the biologists, the zoologists, that start um, creating, for example, if you're a biologist or a, uh, a zoologist or a botanist, um, how do you name new plants? How do you name new species? What are the rules? Who gets to claim priority? So they, they begin to, as it were, legislate for their disciplinary communities. And their, at their international meetings at regular intervals update these codes, really, of um, scientific proceedings in their fields. So that's a that's a top-down model, but it's on a disciplinary basis. There's um, only, I think, one possible exception to my generalization about disciplines, and that is, um, you alluded to it already, namely the standardization of units, measuring units. And it's the, inter- it, this was also one of those you know, 19th century French creations, the Bureau des Poids et Mesures, um, which met, by the way, most recently in 2018 in Versailles, appropriately enough, to replace that um, prototypical kilogram, which was buried in a glass jar mm-hmm. and um, monitored as if it were the crown jewels, to replace that with a new definition of the kilogram in terms of Planck's constant. Mm-hmm. And that was a meeting at which um, I think even the United States was represented because, of course, the scientists, the Bureau, National Bureau of Standards actually was very much involved in this. Oh, yeah. It was total international unanimity on this. Yeah. The National Institute of, of Standards and Technology, I believe they call themselves now. Right. But they yeah. have their own, you know, it, it's somewhere in Maryland where they have the American, you know, kilo and or did and meter and right. all the rest of that. All, all of the signatories to the meter conference, I think it's of 1875, got their own little copy. Of it. <laughs> it's like a party favor they got to take yeah. home. So, but no, I remember actually at this meeting, there was a representative of um, the U.S., Bureau of Standards, and um, he showed a wonderful slide of his staff who were doing the very delicate measurements to make this redefinition possible, and they had Planck's constant tattooed on their arms. <laughs> yeah, so the uh, the uh, you don't realize it, but the uh, the the American foot is an inch is based on the meter and centimeter. Um, it's just uh, derived from that now. Um, and let's let's uh, conclude this sort of historical survey with this uh, this wonderful confrontation between uh, two of your predecessors in the Committee of Social Thought, um, uh, Michael Polanyi and Edward Schills, or as I said to you before I began recording, two of my intellectual heroes, uh, and sometime friends, uh, but still rivals. And you know, uh, when it comes to arguments, they're two bull elephants locked in an arena. I can I can imagine that uh, they didn't hesitate to disagree loudly and vociferously with each other or anyone else. Uh, but their the setting of their disagreement is fascinating, and the, as well as the content. So, could you describe that? This is the beginning of the Cold War. And um, an organization known as the Congress for Cultural Freedom, exposed many decades afterwards as funded by the CIA, um, had invited um, the really the um, elites of the scientific and 
social scientific world to Hamburg. And it was, of course, very symbolic that it was Hamburg rising from the ashes after the bombings of, of World War II to talk about science and freedom. Now, what I think the CIA funders of this conference had in mind was a condemnation of the Soviet Union and the lack of freedom for scientists in the Soviet Union. And there was a kind of pro forma um, telegram sent in sympathy to our colleagues in the Soviet Union. But what really preoccupied the delegates to this conference was the degree to which they constituted something like the international scientific community and what the nature of that community was. Michael Polanyi, brilliant Hungarian physical chemist, whose ideas, I think, about what a scientific community was had been shaped by his own experience in Berlin in the 1920s at the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute for Physical Chemistry, said that it's really like the free market. He had read Hayek, another member of the Committee on Social Thought, mm -hmm. and said that what's really this is really a question of um, free competition amongst free agents and an order, just as an invisible hand creates an order out of a market, um, an order emerges from the free competition, analogous to the free market, in science. And of course, this is meant very much as a repost to the central planning of not only the Soviet Union, but Great Britain, where he, he had worked for a very long time at the University of Manchester, when he was forced to flee Hitler's Berlin. Um, uh, and he, he had been preoccupied. Now, if I recall correctly, and it's probably because of the influence of, of Karl Polanyi, uh, but he he's preoccupied with um, with the nature of market economies and of and research in market economies, I think in the late 30s and 40s, because he's he has his eye both on Stalin's Russia and Hitler's Germany. So, th th so this fits in with the things that he's been thinking about. Yeah. And he has, of course, a lifelong sibling rivalry with Karl, his brother, yes, who's a socialist, and yes. who, really does, who believes um, in an approach to the markets, which is a cultural approach to the markets, that is, markets could not exist without a great many historical cultural preconditions. Um, uh, so yes, this is, a, a, and he has already, he has formed in Great Britain a kind of um, anti- uh, Bernal front. Uh, J.D. Bernal was a very charismatic biologist who was very much in favor of a socialist approach well, to science. Well, actually, let's be fair, a Stalinist approach. <laughs> I mean, that was, uh, uh, that was what Michael Polanyi thought, certainly. Yeah, Absolutely. yeah, that's what, well, yeah, that's what. So, so uh, Michael Polanyi came primed to give this vision. Um, which was even too much for Hayek, who was in attendance. Even Hayek mm. thought that this was going a little too far. Um, yeah. Schill's sociologist, um, Schill said, no, 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 you don't understand. The scientific community is a genuine community in that it shares values and traditions. And it is extremely important, of course, that its independence be respected, just as other um cultural communities within the broader society must enjoy a certain amount of autonomy. But it, it must be bound by shared um, commitments as opposed to cutthroat competition. No order will emerge from chaos without that common ethical commitment to the pursuit of truth. Mm -hmm. And it's very interesting. Schills had, after the war, after he left the OSS, oddly enough, given the – he had um, – I think he formed with 
Leo Szilard, they had formed the Bolton for the Atomic Scientists. Right. Yes. And also then Minerva, which he edited for some years. Which so he was fascinated with uh, the scientific community as a, a as a lived community working out traditions and engaged in inquiry as an object of study for sociologists. They were in some ways scientists were his his area of study as a sociologist. Yes, or intellectuals more generally. I mean, at this yes. time, um, he's, for example, visiting India. He's extremely interested mm-hmm. in Indian intellectuals and their role in the brand new nation of India created in, in 1947. But he, he, for example, one example of that approach in Minerva is his longstanding interest in publication of articles on the subject of how open publication becomes a norm in science. That's a typical Schilzian topic, which is a value, but a value peculiar to this community. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, what's also interesting, as you say, is how they eventually, their their ideas, they persuaded each other, um, that uh, Polanyi became more persuaded by Schilz and Schilz became more like Polanyi. I mean, I guess that's to a certain extent. They, I, they... think, I think Polanyi became more persuaded by Shells. Okay. I think if you look at personal knowledge, mm-hmm. that this idea of the governors of science who are going to somehow assure that standards are held high is very much a Schillsian idea and very at odds with the vision, the Hayekian vision that he presented at that Hamburg conference. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um. Well, we could spend another 60 minutes talking about, um, you know, spontaneous order and does that apply to intellectual life? But anyway, uh, let's, I, I, there's something that's been on my mind for a while. Uh, you are a historian of science. This is, uh, these are scientists engaged in forming communities and institutions. Um, are, is an institution or communities like this, are these a technological development? Uh, I, I, I've been, I ask you this because uh, there's a certain type of, oh, I don't know, it's a, let's call it an enthusiast for a history of technology, which will see something like the automobile as one of the great social revolutions, say, in American history. And I think that is true to a certain extent. But then I also see, I, I, I recoil and think, you know, what's really important also are things like the invention of high school. Uh, high school is a cultural form that brings both men and women. I mean, it creates the teenager. Um, is a high school a technology? Uh, well, no, it's a cultural innovation. So I've been thinking there, there are important cultural innovations uh, as well as that are just as important, if not more important than technological innovation. So, so which is it? one or both or neither or is it just unimportant? There's certainly technological preconditions for the developments that I sketch in the book. So without, for example, um, the acceleration of transportation and communication, for example, it taking no longer a month to cross the Atlantic, but only five days in the course of the 19th century, um, the telegraph, mm-hmm. that that those are enabling conditions for these international scientific congresses and movements. Cheap but, paper for the Republic of Letters. Absolutely it's really, cheap paper yeah. and better roads so that letters get delivered. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, all, all these are technologies which are indeed essential preconditions, but they are not sufficient. It, all of the technology in the world will not avail if there's no will to cooperate 
and there is no vision, no imagined vision of what this community could be. There's always been a utopian element to these visions of intellectual communities, Um, not simply the utopian element that rivals will somehow reach some irenic um, concordance, but also a vision of a community which is not bound by nationality, by confession, and more recently, by race or gender. And without that vision, all the technology in the world will lie fallow. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, I say very early on, well, as we said earlier on in the conversation, much of this comes from historians, from humanists. It's appropriated by, well, by the same people who are also interested in everything. And then eventually it is taken up by the savants, the people that are become, we now call scientists. Um, and yet, while many of these habits have filtered to humanists, conferences, associations, international congresses, it's very interesting that certain some of these cultural forms of scientific inquiry didn't make the jump. Um, early on in the book, you describe how um, was it, it was the, a collective writing or a collective. Um, at first, there was the a there were articles um, from the Paris Royal Academy of Sciences in which were signed La Compagnie um, rather than by individual authors. But there was already a sort of a group scientific endeavor in writing articles. That's never happened in history, has it? I mean, and, and why not? Why, why didn't that model of sort of the group endeavor, why does it remain rather odd and it, only from time to time in, in humanistic endeavors? I'm not sure it is odd. I think we've simply forgotten. Um, So the first big project was a humanities project. It was Theodor Moms' Corpus Inscriptionum Latinarum, which was the collection of all the Latin inscriptions which has survived from the the Mm -hmm. Roman Empire. Um, And that was very explicitly the model for the first scientific collaborations. Um, There was a moment... and the MGH, and uh, come to that, the Oxford right, English Dictionary. Right, Germanic Historia. I mean, yeah. there was a moment in the Prussian Academy of Sciences in where was uh, the you know, middle where the, the, the scientists are desperate. They're absolutely desperate. They say, we must come up with a project to compete with the humanist <laughs> section. <laughs> They're getting all the money again. Um, those were the days. So. Yeah. Um, and also seminar education, the idea of advanced training for graduate students, this is the invention of the philologists and the historians, and it's very explicitly copied by the physicists and the chemists um, who are impressed by these higher standards, disciplinary standards that can be achieved in this fashion. So I think there's a, this is a problem of English because in English – um, the word, the cognate for the Latin scientia became specialized in the natural sciences um, earlier than it did in other languages, and it never became specialized in German. It's all Wissenschaft. Um, so that we have assumptions built into our language and the way in which we now parse disciplines, which obscure the history which is very much a shared history in many cases. It's um, in, in, in ways which... Um, position the humanities in the vanguard. Mm-hmm. Uh, but not in English. There, there were more in the back of the parade cleaning up after the elephant. Well, I wonder, I mean, I think of the Oxford English Dictionary, a collective mm-hmm. project if ever there were one. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so could we? Could you talk a little bit about the research you did for this book? As I said, it's a short and elegant book, but it's uh, still, uh, as you indicate in an author's note, there is uh, there was some you did a, a great deal of of primary research, and it's um, it's interesting how some of these re- relatively modern organizations uh, had neglected their their record keeping or where they had put stuff. So there was so some real detective work was required for you. And with the help, of course, of archivists, no historian, yes, no, no historian works without the help of archivists. And I'm enormously indebted to the archivists um, of the Observatoire de Paris and also um, the University of Uppsala and the World Meteorological Organization. Um, but it is a little shocking, I must say, um, what happens to their records. So the poor archivist at the World Meteorological Organization told me that when the WMO had moved into its big, glassy um, skyscraper-like quarters about a dozen years ago, they just got rid of all the archives. (laughs) I mean, almost all of the archives, which makes a historian's heart stop. (laughs) Um, And I I think it's it's very interesting differing attitudes. So the French... um, it's, you know, the patrimoine uh, national, it's um, the patrimony of the French nation. And they have a, the Observatory of Paris, which goes back to the 17th, late 17th century, has a deep pride in the um, traditions of the institution and um, tries to preserve its, its records. So there are very different attitudes um, of different scientific institutions, and there's no single generalization about for example, amnesia with regard to science. So um, final question for you. Um, You wrote this book during COVID. Um, Ever since I I read my Wall Street Journal or Washington Post, I find all sorts of, you know, essays in the style section or life and arts about how everyone has to dress for the post office world or how commercial real estate is tanking everywhere, Northern Virginia, down Manhattan, Richmond is converting, Richmond, Virginia, down the road from me is converting hundreds of thousands of square feet of office space is being turned into apartments. Um, in a remote working world, does being in the same room with other thinkers still matter? I think so. And I I have only anecdotal evidence, but... Uh, I, I, during the pandemic, I became like many other people um, addicted to scientific podcasts, including one called This Week in Virology, which is a bunch of virologists getting together. And I have noticed that the virologists are now jetting off to all these conferences, hither and yon, even though, of course, it would be perfectly possible to do this by Zoom. Um, so no, I do not think, at least as far as... Um, scientific exchange goes, that we have seen an end to in-person meetings. And I think all of us who have now been part of the great natural experiment of Zoom realize that there's a decay curve of engagement and attention with um, a steady diet of video conferencing, which is not refreshed and reinvigorated by, by personal contacts. My guest today has been Lorraine Daston. She's the author most recently of Rivals, How Scientists Learn to Cooperate. Lorraine Daston, thank you for being part of Historically Thinking. It was my pleasure. Thank you. And thanks so much to you as well for being a part of Historically Thinking. If you like the podcast, then share it with a friend. 
or many friends. Vivian Lundy is our assistant producer. John Ruddat is our sound engineer. I'm Al Zambone, and I'll be back next week with more history to think about and to shape the way we think about the present. 